You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Uh, Let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. Matthew chapter 12. And so we are, we're going we're gonna to finish out the chapter over the next several Sundays in the month of November. So I think we got three here. Um, and then the first Sunday in December, which I think is December 1, so the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll start in our, kind of what we do every year, kind of an Advent Christmas series. And we're looking at um, the carols of Jesus. So we're taking some of the older carols that are written by Jesus, and, or not by Jesus. Oh my gosh, those would be really old, right? Carols that are written about Jesus, not by Jesus, uh, that are rooted in some of the, the messianic promises of Isaiah, which is one of the, uh, the most favorite prophets that Matthew continually quotes. And we feel like it's, hey, it's a good, good mesh here to kind of spend a few weeks talking about that. So I uh, encourage you to, to come back for that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next week or so. But today I just want to look at verses 15 Uh, through 21. So hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So all, all my boys, for some reason, I think I've shared this with you guys before, but they, they are really good singers. Uh, they don't, definitely don't get that from their dad. I like to sing. Like, I'll belt it out, uh, but it's, it's not real pleasant. Amen? So anybody that's over there with me are going, man, I wish he would stop singing. Gosh, I just can't even. That's why they're always quiet, because they can't sing when I'm belting it out. But, uh, but my wife is a good singer, and I mean, she's not here, so I can say that, uh, but she does. She sings really, really well, um, and I think they've got, obviously, this out of their, uh, from their, from Kathy, and um, one of the things that our boys always do is they, they, they try out for specific choirs uh, that they can go and be a part of, so they try out in their school locally, and then they, they get chosen from the school, and they can be a part of this kind of statewide choir. It has, like, an acronym, something like S-H-A-A-A or S-C-A-C-C. I don't know what it is. I'm butchering it like crazy right now. But if anyone's in the choral department knows what I'm talking about, so I just should have brought, I, I literally thought of this illustration while I'm sitting there in the first service. I think this is the best way to kind of open the service. And so I didn't bring the whatever. So sermon prep's always happening up to the point when you stand up here. Just know that. That's how it works with sermons. Um, so Conlon um, made it uh, uh, to one of these choirs. Again, it's kind of a statewide choir. And it always happens kind of on a weekend in November, usually the first part of November. And so basically he's one of like, I think they had three people from his middle school uh, that made it to go and be a part of this choir that's statewide. So all over the state they come. And, and, and so they, they spent all day Friday. Literally we had to get him there at 8 o'clock in the morning. We left at 6 on Friday, mor- Friday morning. We had to be there. He practices all day long on Friday. 
practices most of the day on Saturday, and then they have a concert at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. So it's a pretty full day for him. And so um, Kathy's doing a long-term sub, and so I, I'm the one that had to get him there Friday. And so I'm there all day. I've got to get him the places to go eat. I've got to make sure I you know, get him back on time because they're really sticklers. I mean, it's crazy. They're, uh, you know, like the soup Nazis. You know, if you, if you show up, man, at, you know, 601 or whatever, you're out. It's not just out for practice. You're out, out. Like, pack your bags. You're going back home. And so, uh, and Condon is a little like, we got to be on time and not the jury normal way of being late for everything. So, so I feel that pressure getting him where he needs to be. And so I'm waiting for him in the evening there on Friday. It's around 5. He's supposed to be done around 5.30. And so I'm just hanging out in the, in the hotel lobby. And so they're staying at the Hilton uh, they're in downtown Lexington, which is right across the road from Rupp Arena. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, where downtown Lexington is, or not downtown Lexington, but where the Hilton is uh, there. And so I'm just sitting in the lobby, kind of waiting for him. I'm actually on the phone with my brother. And all of a sudden, man, here comes these two huge buses. And I knew they are coming from UK because they're blue and they have UK on them, right? And, I mean, they're massive. Ma- I mean, they're not an RV. I forget what the tour bus or whatever that thing's called. So two huge buses roll in here. I'm going, huh. That's interesting. I wonder what that is. So they open up the door. I mean, you see all these people running around doing stuff. It's like, this must be kind of a big deal because these people are really, like, really active. They're not active when I show up, but somebody big is here or getting ready to whirl in here. And all of a sudden, here we are, man. I'm, I'm sitting down, like, right in the chair. There's the front door, like, on the second row there. And here they come, the whole football team from University of Kentucky, all of them. Mark Stoops comes in, and then here all, like, 90 or how many of them. I mean, they're a massive group. I mean, they're huge. I mean, absolutely. I'm like, and I'm on the phone with my brother. I'm like commentating to him. Hey, this is what's going on. And he goes, then what are you doing? I don't know. I'm just sitting there watching the whole thing. Just go. Like, I, I really didn't know what to do. That's what everybody's asked me. I told my kids about it. I said, well, what did you do, Dad? I just sit there, you know. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I, there's, I really had that internal conversation. Should I get up? Should I like high five them as they go in? Should I say, yay? You know, should I go shake hand with Mark Stoops. Like, I'm just sitting there, right? I was like, this is a really kind of cool moment, you know? And this was before last night when they got beat, when I would have, it's like, boo, whatever. Um, you know, you beat Tennessee. It's like, it's like Louisville, for crying out loud. But that, moving on. That's a whole that's a story in itself. But, but I guess I hear you. Um, but I'm sitting there the whole time just kind of commentating with my brother and absolutely not knowing what to do other than just kind of watch them and say, well, this is kind of a cool moment. That's kind of cool. Maybe I should have taken a picture. So I could have showed it this morning if I would have had enough time. So I, I, I share that with you because I, I, I think what we've got to understand that um, Matthew is writing his gospel not so that we can do what I did when the UK football team passed by. Just sit back and think, man, that's kind of nice. It's kind of cool to know this information about Jesus. Wow, that's kind of a cool miracle. I'm not even sure if this is all true, but even if it is true, it's kind of, it's kind of neat. That's not his desire. That's not the end goal that Matthew wants from us as far as a response. He's continually putting Jesus before us so that we would surrender our lives to him. He's continually putting Jesus before us so that we won't have a response of like, nice, cool miracle, wow, you must have been a really interesting person. He's wanting us, all of us, to be drawn to him 
that we would give our lives to Him, that we would worship Him, and that we would love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is something that God is teaching us about humanity when He's saying the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So not only is it to, to be a healthy human being, we've got to be ones who can receive the love of God. That is really important. Don't have time to jump into all that, but it is. We've got to be ones who are willing to receive the very love of God. And at the same time, it's not either or, it's both and. We've also got to love Him. And so if we're just doing one, then we're an unhealthy human being. And so in part of what I think Matthew is continually doing is I'm trying to put Jesus before you to stir your emotions, to wake you up, to give and surrender your life to Jesus. Not for us to give kind of an apathetic response of, wow, that's kind of cool what's going on here but know that our hearts and our lives would be transformed by who we see this person to be. And I think that's what's going on in these six verses here. One writer says this, this prophecy that, and I'll come back to it here in just a minute, paints the whole of Christ. In these three or four G, uh, uh, verses here, it paints the whole of Jesus. And and all I'm wanting to do this morning is I'm just trying to bring him before us. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, that you would hear the call of Jesus and not just hear it, but respond. Give your life to him. You're giving your life to something or to someone. And take the time, even in our midst, and say, how's that working? And if it's not working well, which hopefully it's not, I, I want you to see Christ and I want you to give your life to Him. If you're a follower of Jesus or you call yourself a Christian, then, then my prayer is the same prayer I ask myself and I've been praying all this morning. God, deepen my love for Jesus. I'm, I'm like, I'm not satisfied with my love for Him. I'm not content with that. I'm not trying to you know, go into this unhealthy navel-gazing, so to speak. But I do want my love for Jesus to deepen and grow. And it doesn't just happen, you know, kind of apart from the Word of God. It happens through us in the Word of God as Jesus is presented to us. And that, that our seeing of Him would continually warm our hearts and our affections for Him. So that's what I'm after by God's grace, uh, may he do that in us in the next 20 minutes here. So look at verse 15. Let's kind of jump in. We're gonna, I'm going to walk back through this passage quickly. I'm primarily looking at verses 19 and 20. That's where I'm camping out, and uh, we'll just work through these um, fairly quickly. Look at verse 15. Jesus was aware of this, and so you've got to ask, what is this? What is this modifying? So this comes from verse 14. So and in verse 14, we, we read that the religious leaders of this time have kind of, um, kind of upped the ante as far as their opposition toward Jesus. So up to this point, Jesus may have been a bother to them. Uh, now they see him as a threat, and they need to get rid of him. And you'll see this as we work through the gospel. This opposition toward him kind of keeps you know, escalating. And so they're, they're plotting. Verse 14 tells us the religious leaders are plotting and thinking, how can we kill him? How can we get rid of him? And Jesus, being aware of this, what did he do? 
It's not a trick question. It's, it's right there on the screen. It's underlined. Yeah. He withdrew. That's strange. He went away. That's not what I would expect. It goes on. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. And this is what he says in verse 16. He warned them not to make him known. That, that's strange. So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is an unusual description of the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, it just seems kind of weird that whenever he's facing opposition, this is what they want the Messiah to do. You face opposition, you, you know, go ca- Captain Marvel on him, right? You know, it's like fly through, whatever. Uh, do a miracle, you know, blow him up, whatever. It's like they're wanting him to exert his power and, and, and take over things. And instead, what does he do? He, he withdraws. And he heals people and he tells them, hey, look, don't, don't make this known. Keep this quiet. Messiahs don't retreat. They advance. Messiahs don't seek to be hidden, but known. So it's almost like Matthew's going, man, this is kind of confusing, isn't it? And he's going, yeah, it, it, it was confusing for us. And we'll see this as we, we get into the section where, he starts, where Jesus starts speaking in these kind of what they call parables and And sometimes we, modern understanding of this, think that the parables are there to kind of make it easy to understand what Jesus is talking about. I don't know about you. If you've not read the parables, read them because they're not easy to understand. And the purpose of the parables were that they wouldn't be easy to understand. There's a a hiddenness that's supposed to happen with the parables. That's why you see over and over the disciples going to Jesus going, huh? Huh? Right? It's like, that's a nice story. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so Matthew's saying, yeah, I know this looks confusing. This is not what we would expect from the Messiah. But look, this has been the plan. It's always been the plan. And to show that this has always been the plan, he takes Isaiah 42, the first song about the servant, the first kind of song about this suffering servant, this this messianic promise. And this is the longest quote that Matthew uses in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, it's almost verbatim here. And so all Matthew's trying to do here is like, look, I know his behavior seems confusing, right? He, He faces opposition. He doesn't go and attack. He retreats. He heals people and he keeps telling, hey, be quiet. Don't tell anybody. This seems like odd behavior for the Messiah, but Matthew's going, no, he is the one. This is the plan from the beginning. And let me show you. And he quotes the first four verses in Isaiah 42. Look what he says here in verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And so, if, if you've been with us from the beginning and if you remember a few things, hopefully you, you, you hear this. Like this is, this is kind of a summary of Jesus' life. This is not only a summary of his life up to this point, it's a summary of the gospel up to this point in just one verse. So he's summarizing kind of the first seven chapters of the gospel of Matthew here in one verse. And I'll show this on a slide. So chapters one and two, if you remember, Jesus was presented as the child and that word, the child, can is, is also be translated the servant, depending on context here. So chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is presented as a child nine times. You go to chapter 3, we have the baptism of Jesus, 
where we, we hear from God the Father, this is my beloved Son on whom I love deeply and I'm delighted in, and the dove that's representing the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon Jesus. And then you go into chapter 4, and it's the temptation of Jesus, and the refrain that Satan uses to tempt Jesus is what? What's the refrain? He says over and over. If you are the Son of God. So he's... He's questioning, right, whether he truly is the son, whether God is truly his father and he loves him and he's delighted in him. That's, that's the, the, the thing that he tries to shake in Jesus that goes on in chapter 4. And then chapters 5 and 7, what do we have Jesus doing? He's proclaiming justice to the nations. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And so when we think about justice, don't think about it in legal terms. But think about it from the idea of properly ordering of society and in our own lives. Another way of looking at this is in the Lord's Prayer where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's justice that he's talking about here. That's proclaiming justice to the nations. How is society to be ordered? How is society supposed to be lived out? How are you supposed to live? That's the mindset of justice and all Matthew is trying to say here is look this is him I know it's strange I know he's doing things that are confusing but he is the Messiah that Isaiah is writing about here hundreds of hundred years before he showed up on the scene and then he goes on in verse 19 and he kind of shifts gears so to speak here Isaiah does and doesn't just talk about who he is as the, as the Messiah, but he also talks about the way in which he'll do his work, the manner in which he'll do it, the how. And look what he says here, starting in verse 19. He will not argue or shout. So what does this mean? What's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus will not be one who will attempt to dominate or shout others down. Like, I don't, I don't know, maybe you don't yell at your kids, all right? So, I don't want to, right? <laughs> but there are times when I yell at my kids. And when I'm yelling at them, I'm hoping that my voice, the sheer volume of my voice will shut them up. Now, I'm not saying do that, right? In fact, I'm, I do a lot of repenting when that happens, right? But the aim, the reason why I'm raising my voice is I'm trying to shut them up. I'm trying to kind of dominate them in that moment. That's not the way of Jesus. He will not argue or shout. No, no one will hear his voice in streets. What in the world is Isaiah talking about there? He's talking about this idea that we're in Jesus, there's no self-advertisement or a modern way of looking at this and not to say that this is wrong. So please don't take me off deep in here. Jesus is not one that's going to be caught shooting selfies, right? He's not. He probably wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on Twitter Instagram, any kind of social media that has a basically a platform, not always, not always, but in a lot of cases, a platform for self-advertisement. That is not the way 
Jesus, no one will hear his voice in streets. The intention behind he will not argue or shout, no one will hear his voice in streets, is kind of more of a cumulative emphasis here to where we see that it's a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. Yes, Jesus will confront evil, and he will confront evil people. I mean, later on in this chapter, he calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers. That takes some strength. So he's not a doormat where people just walking all over him. But what we got to understand is that what we see, what we experience with him is a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening kind of ministry. One writer says it like this. Nations are bent on violence and arrogance. And those who want peace and who work for it are always in the end shouted down by those who want more money, land, security, status, and are prepared to fight and kill to get it. Those who are great and mighty in this world make sure their voices are heard in the streets. Those who shout the loudest get obeyed the soonest. But that is not the way of Jesus. It's almost like Matthew is saying, I want to put him before you. This is how I experienced him. Sit with this. This is how he lived. This is his manner. It's not just what he did, but how he did it. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He continues on in verse 20. It says this, He will not break a bruised reed. Now just in case you don't know what a, a reed is, there's a, a picture of one. I mean, they... They grew by the millions in marshes and riverbanks in this time. And we, we know what a reed is. We see them at ponds and lakes or whatever. And in this time, a reed was used to kind of measure things and also to support things. And so if it lost its straightness, right, if something happened to where it got bruised, quote-unquote, or broken, so if it lost its straightness or, you know, it, it was worthless, it was of no value, it, it, it couldn't, do what it was created to do anymore and because there were millions of them you just threw them away like it would be stupid to keep it right it's just broken goes on in the second half of that verse it says this jesus will not put out a smoldering wick so most of us in this room know what a smoldering wick is you see a little picture here it's just where the there is no flame, and it's, and it's barely hanging on. And so think about this. And this, you know, this is not a big deal for us because if that happens, we just turn on a light, right? It's like, eh, who gives a rip? You know, throw a thing away. It's a piece of junk anyways. What, you know, so, like, that doesn't really move us. But in this time, you don't have any electricity. This is the way you got light. You lit a lamp. And if a lamp wasn't able to kind of have a flame, then it couldn't do what it was created to do. It couldn't do its purpose. It's supposed to light up. The room here and a little bit of smoke ain't going to light up no room, right? It's like, get rid of it. Throw it away. Common sense would say, and not only say, but it would demand that both this broken reed and a smoldering wick be thrown away and replaced. Get rid of them both. They're no value. They're useless. They can't do what they're created to do. And there's plenty more of them. I mean, I mean the best example, I mean, I literally not maybe an hour, a good little while over the last this week trying to think about like what's a good example here of what we do with stuff that's just 
you know, what's one that I was trying to think of myself? That the only thing that came to my mind was sunglasses. I don't know about you guys, but I buy the cheapest sunglasses I can find because usually I sit on them, break them, lose them. They get thrown out the window. I don't know why they get thrown out the window, but somehow they, they do. But you know what I'm saying? Like anybody like that? Just like you buy the cheapest you can find. And so when your sunglasses break, maybe, I don't know. I know some of you love to keep things, no matter if it's broken or not. You know, one man's blank is another person's treasure. I can't remember how that first thing, you know what I'm talking about. So if that's you, we love you. I'm glad you're here. You may have a problem with hoarding, but that's another sermon in and of itself. But whenever my sunglasses are broken, I don't tape them. <laughs> like I don't get out duct tape and oh they're cracked in the middle hey, I try to do that or that daggum arm it always flung let's put some duct no I, I I throw them away why number one it's no longer of use and value to me I'm not going to wear sunglasses with one eye <laughs> it's like my left eye's covered right I can see awesome here you know no I, and plus there are hundreds of them at Walmart I'll go drop $15, $20 and buy another pair. Throw this away. If something loses its value, it no longer does what it's supposed to do. We quickly get rid of it. And look, this is not how Jesus works. So obviously, guys, just to make sure we are all on the same page, Isaiah is not talking about a literal read here. It isn't like Jesus is walking, hey, disciples, don't, don't, don't break that. Right? We can keep this, take it home with us. No, he's not talking about a literal reed or talking about a literal, you know, smoldering wick. He's talking about us. That we're bruised. That we're broken. That we're wounded. And some of us in this room, our spiritual lives are like that smoldering wick. It's just barely hanging on. In this passage here, this, this imagery that Isaiah puts before us describes an extraordinary willingness to encourage, to be patient, to have compassion on damaged and vulnerable people like you and me. A bruised reed he will not break. This is Jesus. This is who he is, not just who he is. This is how he operates. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not put out. So that reminds us of this, that to Jesus, no one is useless. To Jesus, no one is too far gone. No one is useless. And to Jesus, no one is too far gone. No matter your sin, that you have done or been done to you, no matter how wounded and bruised and battered and broken you may feel. And you might even be in a season right now to where it's not just what you feel, it's your reality. That you can't even do anything of what seems like of value and worth. That even for you to get out of bed is a win for you during the day. And hear me, even though probably from maybe even your own family, maybe friends, and unfortunately sometimes from your church family, they may look at you in this broken situation and say, come on, get your act together. What's the matter with you? Put a smile on your face. Don't you know what Jesus did for you? But hear me, this is not how Jesus sees you. 
He is not frustrated. He's not frowning at you. He's not irritated with you. He's not disgusted with you. He first sees you. And listen, I know sometimes it's hard for us to believe this, but his heart is warmed with affections at the sight of you. No matter where you are at, no matter if you're laying flat on your back in your bed and you cannot get up. He sees you with delight. He feels compassion for you. He is patient. He doesn't overlook you. He doesn't treat you harshly. He's attentive and cares about you. A bruised reed he does not break. And that's some of you this morning. A smoldering wick he doesn't put out. So if you're one who is bruised and broken here today, and in case you're wondering whether you are that or not, Let's kind of do the two-finger test. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody raise your two fingers up here. Come on, work with me. We've done this before. For you guys that have been here before, you know what I'm getting ready to do, right? So take your two fingers, put it on your wrist. All right, you feel something? Hopefully you do, Lord willing. If you don't feel something, there is something wrong, right? It's called a pulse. If you have a pulse, you are bruised and broken and battered and wounded. You may not be aware of it, but you are. And the good news is this, is that you're in the right place. This is not a gathering for those who have it together, even though it may seem like that on the outside. This place is a hospital for those who are often sick. And what those individuals need to feel and experience from the body of Christ is exactly what's quoted here. Compassion. Patience. Encouragement. They need to feel and experience the delight of the Father through His body. Richard Sibbs, in his little book, The Bruised Reed, says this. Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. There's more mercy in him than sin in you. Who else would you want to give your life to? Because I know, man, we live in a world that's broken. It's not as it should be, and you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. You feel it. You see it also. And if you've taken time to kind of at least be somewhat self-aware of your own life, you would see that in your own life there's a lot of brokenness, woundedness, and hurt and pain. And if you haven't been beat up and battered and wounded, then give it time. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but it'll happen. And the question is this, is what do we do? What do we do when this is our reality? 
Or even better yet, not just what do we do, where do we go to find healing? Where do we go to find real help? Because the reality is this, if you don't find a place to find healing for your wounds and your brokenness, you will end up bleeding on people who didn't even cut you. You get that? And that's why in the end of this little section, in verse 21, it says this, in his name, and who's that name? In Jesus' name will be the hope of the world. And I don't mean this in some kind of cliche way that, hey, the only place we can find healing is we just go to Jesus. But I do mean it in a, in a real way that that is the only place we can go. It is. There's no other place for us to go. I mean, you can try. You can go to other things, and we do that really, really well. How do we kind of mask and push down and, and cover up and camouflage and deal with our hurt and our pain? Whatever you want. Like, you can go on that journey. God will allow you, right? But I'm here to tell you the place where we can find, or at least the healing begins, the healing starts, the the, the woundedness is taken care of, the, the beating up maybe, we have a place for that, is in Jesus. Jesus is the hope for the weary and the heavy laden. That's the promise there at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what we just looked at in the first part of chapter 12. Jesus is our holiday, amen? I mean, yeah, let's do some holidays and vacations and have some great times, but understand this, that ultimately Jesus the person of Jesus is our holiday. He's our refuge. He's our rest. He's the place that we go to retreat. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is our mind regulator. Amen? When your mind is doing some crazy stuff, Jesus is the only one that brings some normalcy to you. He's our prince of peace. He's the bridge over troubled water. He's our hallelujah. He's the water for the thirsty and bread for the hungry. This is who he is. And Matthew's going like, look at him. I'm putting him before you, not so you can just kind of look at it and go, wow, what should I do? Take a picture, you know, wave at him. Hey, you're really kind of neat. No, that we would give our lives to him. So maybe you're here, man, and I just want to encourage you. But maybe you're here and you're kind of like, you, you find, I, I use a language kind of like the inner lawyer. You're kind of like, ah, I object to this idea of being broken. I'm an awesome, amazing person. And maybe you are. And I'm not saying you're not. I guess. But here's what I am saying. And I say this as tender as I can. If you don't recognize your brokenness, then Jesus is of no help to you. And Matthew's desire and my desire is that you would give your life to Jesus. And the only way you will do that is when you recognize your own brokenness. And your own woundedness and your own beat upness, so to speak, and batteredness. If you do not see that, you'll never cry out to Jesus. You'll do what the Pharisees do, the religious leaders, and you'll try to figure out a way to get rid of him. And so my encouragement for you is that as you here, where you're having trouble seeing your own brokenness, that you would just ask this simple prayer, show me. Show me. Help me to see. As hard as that is going to be, and possibly as hurtful, that could be really hurtful. Help me see. Not so that I can glory in my brokenness. Like, that's what we love to do in our culture, right? 
We love the glory. Oh, I'm just a broken sinner. Blah, 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 blah. Especially within Christian subculture. Maybe not within culture at large, but Christian subculture has gotten this little, oh, this horrible man, just sinner, whatever. But here's the goal in brokenness. is not to grovel in your brokenness. is that we would glory in this beautiful Savior, and his name is Jesus. This one who never breaks a bruised reed. Puts out a smoldering wick. He never does that. Maybe you're here and you've got a friend or a loved one or a child or a mom or a dad or an uncle or a grandparent, whatever, man, whatever relationships you have here and you feel like, man, they don't know Jesus and I have a heart and a desire for them to know Christ. Then I know this may sound like a really sort of mean quote-unquote prayer, but this is what you could ask is that, God, would you bruise them? Would you break them? Would you wake them up so they would see their need and they would cry out to Jesus? I'm not saying God is out to kind of get us in some mean, hateful way. He doesn't arbitrarily bruise us. There's a purpose behind it. And one of the things that we can ask God the Father to do for those family members and individuals and friends in our life who are far from Christ, who do not know anything about Christ, to open their eyes to their need, bruise them, God so that they can find ultimate healing in Jesus. So maybe our prayers show me my brokenness, Lord. May we pray, God, please, may you bruise others so they can see their need for Christ, not in some kind of mean, hateful way, but out of a desire that they would give their lives to Jesus. And others of us, maybe the prayer in light of what we just heard here is that you would ask that God would help you, right? Help you during a season where you feel your brokenness. Like you just feel it. And that he would help you to kind of have what Charles Spurgeon called as a kind of a, a but Jesus kind of spirit. And this is what I mean by it. Charles Spurgeon is a, a pastor that pastor of church in the mid-1800s. Well-known pastor. To, uh, he was the first kind of mega church pastor. I mean, his church was like 20,000 people. Crazy. And they didn't even have amplification during this time, which is absolutely nuts. Uh, but he pastored a church in London called New Park Street Baptist Church. And if you've read any biographies, there's a good little biography by a guy named Zach Eswan called Spurgeon Sorrows. It's a small one, great little book. I would encourage you to read, especially if you're someone that's going through depression and anxiety and struggles with that. Man, it's a great little read. But if you've read any biographies about him, you will know that Spurgeon was marked by deep sorrows, great disappointments, regularly battled accusations from false brothers and sisters. He dealt with gout, anxiety, deep dark seasons of depression and panic attacks this is Spurgeon what they call the prince of preachers and you can say he was a bruised and battered man who was used by God in a very powerful way and he lived as as he called this kind of but Jesus in his spirit and this is what I mean by that he's preached a sermon several years ago called fear not and here's what he said and i'll end with this if our greatest hope isn't our present healing but his everlasting love what do we do we look at our accuser and we whisper if we cannot shout you might be right but jesus you might be right things are worse than i thought but jesus you might be right, I'm abandoned, 
but Jesus. You might be right, I should stay down, but Jesus. You might be right, it would be too late for me, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm, I'm out of reach, but Jesus. You might be right, I'm a sinner, but Jesus. You might be right, they may be better off without me, but Jesus. You may be right, I deserve to die, but Jesus. When we are beat up, if all we can say is, but Jesus, we have done enough. Why? Because a bruised reed, he will never break. Let's pray together. Father, in the quietness here, God, I just, I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to see, just put these words before our eyes and help us to be kind of, sometimes a lack of words, Lord, amazed by who Jesus is and that our hearts and our affections would just be stirred and warmed for him. That we would see the kind of patience and kindness and compassion and delight that he has over us, so much so, God, that it changes us, the very core of who we are, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we end our services like we always do here, we end with communion, which is an opportunity for us as the church to come forward. If you're a follower of Christ, we ask you to break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. But if you're not a Christian, then our encouragement for you is that you would consider Christ, consider the one that Matthew and Isaiah points, puts before us today and that you would give your life to him. So we always have leaders that are in the back. They have a lanyard on. They would love to pray with you and they would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So church, when you're ready to take communion, you can stand up and come forward. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.